Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. (laughs) Well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. Sherry, I know I say this every time we have a guest on the podcast, how excited I am. But this time, it's legit. I am super excited. And I'm not just excited for myself. And, and for you, because we get the opportunity to talk to this wonderful gentleman. But I am excited for our Echoes of Recovery family, because this guest is someone that they asked for, someone they were big fans of, and they pushed us to reach out and contact him. And he's agreed to be here. And so, Dr. Rob, Dr. Robert Weiss, we're so glad you're here. Dr. Rob, thanks for being here and welcome. I am really excited to be here. I want to encourage and support all the families of the addicts that we all love and work with. Excellent. Let me, let me tell our listeners a little bit about, about you before we get started. Dr. Robert Weiss is a PhD and has a master's in social work. He's an expert in the treatment of adult intimacy disorders and related addictions. He is a clinical sexologist and psychotherapist, and he is the author of 10 books, including the one that many of our Echoes of Recovery people have read and are just goo-goo about, Protopendence, Moving Beyond Codependency. Now, Dr. Rob, do I have that correct? That, that, that book, that particular one um, was published about two and a half years ago. Is that right? Yeah, Protopendence was published in 2018, and I'm actually rewriting it and updating it, and I'll have a new version out next April because it has become such a thing, you know, in a way. That we're going to get into the the title prodependence that word versus the word codependence. We're going to talk a lot about that. I know that uh, you are extremely familiar with codependence, what that is, um, because you actually did your PhD dissertation on codependency. So this is an area where you have a lot of familiarity, not only clinical research, clinical experience, but but you know you, you've studied this backwards and forwards. I want to start out, Dr. Rob by, you know, I've often written about a a comparison to cancer, comparing it to alcoholism. There are over 15 million Americans who suffer from alcohol use disorder, which is roughly the same number of Americans that suffer from cancer. Um, It's, I, I believe that alcohol use disorder, alcoholism is a disease, not a weakness. I believe that personal choice certainly is a factor in alcohol use disorder, but it's also a driving force in a lot of cancers. So I believe there's a lot of similarities between alcoholism and cancer. And like I said, I've written about those comparisons extensively. The thing I've never considered is how the comparison between alcoholism when you are the loved one of someone who's suffering from alcoholism, that comparison to being the loved one of someone who suffers from cancer. Can you explain to our audience um, how you break that down? So um, actually, this is how I started prodependence, which is in this discussion between, you know, if you are a loved one of someone who has a physical illness and you, and actually prodependence starts with this, really it does. Uh, and because that person has cancer, heart problems, it doesn't matter what it is. You, you start working three jobs because they can't really work. Um, you start looking in and worrying about them all the time. You put away your recreational activities. You might start overeating, getting anxious. You're checking on them all the time. Uh, maybe you're not as involved in your personal life. Maybe you gain weight. Maybe you become irritable. All of that related to the fact that your partner is in crisis, a health crisis, and you don't know if they're going to survive or not. And so you put your life on hold to take care of them and to take care of your family. In the medical world, we call that person a hero. We say, wow, they are such an angel to have given up parts of themselves to show up for this troubled loved one. They are putting their recreation aside, their free time aside. They're even putting aside their self-care to go and take care of this person. We bring those people casseroles and say, can I take care of your kids so you can get out one night because it's really hard to live with a loved one who's ill. That's how we treat the families of people who are uh, dealing with physical illness. But when we're dealing with people who are involved with the disease of alcoholism and drug addiction and all the related addictions, when you're a partner or a loved one under codependence, um, 
you know, and that whole vision, and you are taking time off from work and working three jobs, or you've given up your recreation activities and you gain weight and you nag and you become someone you never wanted to be and you gain, you know, all that stuff um, because you are caring for and deeply love someone, a family member who is failing as if they were failing. No difference to my mind between drugs and alcohol and physical failing because they're related. You don't get casseroles. You don't get called angel. You're, you're asked in the alcohol and drug world, what's wrong with you for being this, this person? And how did you decide to stay with them? And let's look at what's in your history um, that led you to choosing this person. And what's wrong with you that you haven't left a long time ago? And in fact, because you are codependent, you are making the situation worse because you're enabling and rescuing. And what you should do is keep living your life and let this person figure it out on their own. Um, and that to me is, and has always been, uh, abusive. Because if I love someone who's troubled, I don't care what they're troubled with. I want you to appreciate that it's hard for me and that I am standing up with the strength of the love I have to be with this troubled person. My desire to be with this troubled person is not because I'm sick as a partner of a family member. It's because I love them. And I don't understand why we see that in families of medical health, but in families dealing with addiction, there's something wrong with the family. I, I love that you call it pro-dependence because when Matt and I started being on, the, I started being on the podcast more and we would talk about these things. I could not stand codependence. I felt like I was being punished. And I love how you pointed out, we start looking at what's the matter with you. What in your history has brought you to be able to love this person and still continue to be with them. So I love how you have taken that negativity away from trying to be supportive and trying to help your loved one who's struggling, no matter what, whether it's mental illness or addiction or cancer or a phys another physical ailment that we're just trying to be caretakers of those that we love. And it's not, and even if there is something wrong with you, Sherry, that you have emotional issues or trauma issues, or the fact that you've chosen to focus on the person you love who is struggling, I think can only be seen as a strength how brave you are to stay with that troubled alcoholic. It must be really painful and difficult. I, I agree with you. I think that we have far too long judged people rather than rewarding them for the love that they give. Sometimes the, the codependent uh, behavior is actually even blamed for the addiction itself. The, the, the loved one of the alcoholic is blamed for their person's alcoholism. Often that happens by the, like if we look at our case, by the husband himself. I, I at times said, Sherry, if you weren't so naggy, if you weren't all up in my business, I wouldn't have been an alcoholic to begin with. Now, I think we can all agree, you know, obviously that that, that, is, a, that is a false equivalence, that, that her, anything Sherry did didn't cause my addiction. However, some of the, the traits of codependency, some of the things- I don't, that oh, Hold on, I need to say just when we're talking, I don't believe in codependency. So you can say the traits of what people think are codependency. Um, and I want this on the air. I want us to talk about this. I think the word is um, really shouldn't be used when it comes to do it. And we can talk more about that later, but the truth is it doesn't have any scientific validity. And so it's like, it to, for me, it's like you saying, well, when we look at these uh, potions that are made by witch doctors that help people with cancer. To me, that's the same as you're saying codependency because it really doesn't exist. So I just want to put that out there because when you say it, I'm going to push back because I don't think, I don't think that word uh, has a meaning. I don't think it belongs in our literature, and I certainly don't think it belongs with our troubled families. So it's a little pushback from me. Well, I appreciate that. What, why don't we? Why don't we go there? It's never, codependency has never been in the DSM. It's never been an official, officially recognized medical diagnosis. How did it become so prevalent and accepted then? So just for clarity, um, when you have a diagnosis created like depression, okay? And we all can acknowledge people are depressed. It goes in a guide called the DSM, which you mentioned. And that's how therapists and professionals determine, does this person have this problem? There are books in medical care. we have same things. In other words, their criteria for, do you have the flu? Do you have COVID? Do you have whatever it is? And you can check the boxes and yes, I have it or yes, I don't. But if something is not formally acknowledged in the medical or psychological psychiatric field, then what you think is codependency in Colorado may be completely different than what I think codependency is in California, because there is no formal organized researched way of saying what this is. And because of that, it has never been in any of our 
therapy diagnoses books, you know, there is, there's depression, there's anxiety, there's alcohol, you know, all those things, but there's nothing about codependency number really primarily because it's never been proven. There has not been any research that's legitimate on codependency since 1994, 1994. And even that research basically said, this isn't a thing. Um, so we have been living in this, in my experience, my opinion, this sort of 1980s, 1990s view of family members in recovery, which has not been updated, reviewed, or considered in any other way than codependency, even though codependency has never been a real diagnosis. If, if, if it's never, you know, the latest update is from 1994 and it's never been right. official, how did it right. just become so prevalent and accepted? How is it mainstream, you know, terminology? So you have to understand when codependency came about. It came about in the early 1980s. And it really, in my mind, and not only in my mind, in my research, it's really a leading edge of the women's movement of feminism. Because in the early 1980s, if you want to recall that time, or we're never in that time, you can watch a little movie called Nine to Five. And it talks about women who were fighting against the man, against the the, the, the oppressor, the boss who is always in charge and the women who actually know more are being shoved to the side. I mean, that's what nine, uh, the movie Nine to Five is about women who uh, are profoundly talented in the workplace, but they're never getting a chance. And it was in that world where feminism and women kind of said, you know, we don't want to depend on men. We don't want to look up to men. We don't want to see men as authorities. We want to be equal. And so we have to live and act and embrace the same world that men live in. Unfortunately, what that meant was putting aside some very valuable and meaningful expressions of being a woman, like compassion and empathy and relationship building and building community and all that stuff. So basically, we said to women, you go do it on your own. You go figure it out. Go to the top of the scale. Compete with every other. You know, that's how the guys do it. That's how you should do it. Um, unfortunately, that had the what codependency did. It was a message that said depending on men or in a larger sense, depending on people is not a good thing. You need to do it your own, go at your own, figure it out on your own perfect message for women in the early eighties, because they weren't going to break through that glass ceiling unless they did go at their own, but it got skewed when it came to taking care of and nurturing people, male or female, because the idea that if I care for others, if uh, others depend on me, if I have to be responsible to others, then I'm not living my best self. And I need to let go of those dependencies in order to achieve, to, as we used to say in those days, to self-actualize. Um, so in many ways, the strength of dependency, depending on people, taking advantage of what we share together to lean into each other, for women to embrace some of their God-given uh, skills as women, which is encouraging dependency, working within dependency, you know, all of that got thrown out the window. And all of a sudden it was bad to be a caretaker. It was bad to be a caregiver. But guess who are the primary caretakers and caregivers? Women. Guess who read 95% of all self-help books? Women. Um, guess who read 95% of 11 million copies of Codependent No More that were sold? Women. So this is clearly and was clearly codependency, a move for women to be less dependent on men and achieve on their own. Unfortunately, when it made its way into mental health and addiction, it started to get profoundly skewed because the people you love who are struggling with addiction need help and they are not going to make it on their own. And the person's help that they most need are the family and loved ones who are around them. They're going to be the most helpful, the most effective because they're the closest to them. And what codependency did was it tossed them out with a laundry and said the addict needs to do it on their own. And that isn't the best way to support recovery. So really codependency came out of the women's movement. It came out of this concept of the family disease of addiction that John Bradshaw talked a lot, a lot in those days. Um, and really it, it poisoned the well for a lot of incredibly loving, nurturing people who love a troubled person because all of a sudden it wasn't a good thing for them to be caretaking for that person. It meant there was something wrong with them. I just couldn't agree more with, with everything you said. I, I'm curious. As, as we meet more and more people and hear their stories and connect them, because that's, that's what our program and our podcast is all about, is connecting people. It's peer support, connecting people who have similar stories. And the more stories that we hear, the more we notice gender roles and, that are just naturally inherently there. Certainly in parenting, there are, you know, I, I thank God that, uh, that women are the mothers and, and are there to, to nurture the way they do, because if it was left up, uh, left up to us guys, 
there'd be a lot of missing parts in my humble opinion. But I get really nervous when I talk about gender roles and you talk about it very comfortably. And I'm just, I'm curious about that. In this day and age, do you ever get pushback when you talk about the fact that empathy and compassion and relationship building, these are natural traits of women. Do you get pushback on that? Well, it's not that men don't have them. And it's not that women, there aren't women who don't express them, but this is a bell curve, right? The majority of women tend to encourage empathy, relationship building, tend to be more focused on community and compassion. Men tend to be more individualistic, more competitive, um, more aggressive, and it's a great balance. What happened in the 80s and 90s was um, because of feminism, there was a turning away from biology in terms of gender roles. So because feminism had such a strong emphasis on you can do it like a man, you can be like a man, you can get out there, it diminished what are traditional um, expressions of female bonding. And why I feel perfectly comfortable with it is because starting in the early 2000s, we started going back to gender differentiation research. So we look at the brain, we look at interactions, we look at how people express themselves. And when you look at the big numbers, women have particular ways of expressing themselves that have nothing to do with how they're raised. You know, you can give little girls dolls and trucks. They're generally going to want to play with the dolls. It's not big. It's, yes, if you only gave them trucks and you were raising them like boys, they'd only have trucks, but they'd rather often have the fun little puffy things because that's how their brains are made. So we have moved from a place of pure environmental gender, you know, it's how you're raised and what your mom said and what they said in school and what color you wore and what toys you played with. That was feminism in its first form. Now we understand that boys and girls are different. And by the way, if you saw me without clothes on, you'd probably know that. And if you look at behavior, why are men more aggressive? Why do more men get arrested for aggressive behavior? Why are men arrested and engaged in more problems with sex crimes? It's because of testosterone. We are more aggressive. We are more driven sexually. We are different than women. It doesn't mean you don't love sex and pursue sex, ladies. It's just that we come from a different place in our brains. You cannot understand why we walk down the street and say, oh, look at the butt on him or the butt on her. It's male behavior. It's testosterone. It doesn't mean it's nice to say it out loud, but you meet any group of men who are sitting together and, oh, look at her, look at him. It's like what men do. And sorry, ladies, we don't have to act it out, but it's where our brain goes because it's how we're built. So there is differentiation between men and women. And when you try to shove women into this closet of there is something wrong with acting in those ways, but if you act like a guy, that's how you get ahead. You're diminishing and devaluing the incredible nurturing empathy and compassion that women can often bring to the table. And you need both. Um, by the way, I wanted to go back to something you said earlier about um, you know, how it affected your relationship to blame your partner for being codependent. And I think this is one of the problems with codependency. It has given addicts an excuse to keep using. It is so easy for an addict to say, because they now have this word and they know what it means. Oh, my girlfriend, my boy, they're so codependent. If they just didn't do this, didn't do this and nag and I wouldn't drink. And so, you know, one of the things I have to say to every partner on earth of any addict ever is that you were not responsible, nor could you ever be responsible for this person's addiction. And not only are you not responsible for their problem, you are not responsible for it happening again, for it being repeated. If I'm an addict, my drinking, my using, my sexing, my gambling, whatever it is, that's my choice. You can never tell me, you can hate me, you can throw rocks at me, you can gain 300 pounds and never want to sex me again, and I can divorce you, I can go for a walk. You know, the automatic uh, solution to having an unhappy relationship is not to blame my spouse and then go act and use or go out there and act out. Um, so what has happened is relationship problems and issues between couples have allowed us with codependency to point at the partner and say, it's your fault. And boy, do addicts want someone else to point the blame on. Um, and partners, unfortunately, will take that on because codependency has been the rule for 40 years. And it's said, if you're involved with an addict alcoholic, there is something wrong with you. And the culture has so fully embraced that, that partners have diminished their ability to say what they wanna say and be who they wanna be. I know partners who say, I'm really angry, but I don't wanna show my anger because what if he drinks again? Or I'm so devastated, but I, but I don't wanna start crying because maybe he or she will go out and act out again. It's like, you cry, you yell, you do what you need to do because that's about you. What the addict does with it is up to them. And so this, we've actually therapeutically enmeshed these people and looked at them as a system that always plays out in a certain way. And that's just not true. 
I want to ask about detachment. Now, Wait a minute, I thought Sherry me... asked a lot of questions. How come, Matt, you're asking all the questions? You said Sherry is the charming, engaging, wonderful person. To show she hasn't said a word. I get asked the questions. My answers are pretty uh, truthful and blunt or emotional. And so people like that. I think she is the star of the podcast. You wouldn't have that's what I thought. I come in totally unprepped. So I am like fresh and raw, I think is a good way to describe. Like, I don't know what's going on. And so sometimes I'm blindsided with questions and and I just let my emotions and opinions well, I'm take just over. Keep you in the game, Sherry. I'm keeping you in the game. Yeah. So I'm sorry, let's go ahead. You guys don't know this on the air, but I'm watching these folks and they are so cute together. You don't get to see that. Oh my God. They're like a, a pair of twins or something. We do do that, but oh, let me say this. One of the things about codependency that sort of has been drummed into our heads is you don't want to become old people and become like the same person. You know, you still need to hold on to your individuality and absolutely. And I have to tell you when I'm like in Palm Springs, and I see an older couple coming toward me in the distance and they're both wearing tan shorts and green shirts and little flip-flops and they have short gray haircuts. I don't know who is who from a distance. And it's because they have lived together and loved each other for so long that they dress alike, they act alike. I think that's wonderful. I don't think that's codependency. I think that is the gift of intimacy, relationship and bonding. I would like nothing better to, than to be as close as I can possibly be and still maintain a sense of myself with my partner. And I think that is very doable, but codependency has kind of, again, skewed that vision and said, boy, those people should be dressed differently. They should be standing three feet apart. You know, All of that separation stuff, which I think we've spent far too much time focused on rather than the connections. There used to be a commercial where it's an older couple and they're in a burger joint. It's a fast food yeah. commercial, which I, I, we're not fast food people, but the the woman takes the lid off the bun of her burger and the husband reaches over and eats her pickle and there's no words spoken. Yeah. It just happens. That's, that's what I started picturing when you talked about the couple. Dressed I love that. Like. I love that. Now you'll say, oh, you know, codependency. Well, he can't even finish a sentence without him or her interrupting. And my thought is they know each other so well that she can jump in there. He can jump in there. They can finish each other's sentences. How beautiful is that? So to be very clear in my mind, pro-dependence, and there's a P in front of it, pro-dependence has flipped codependency on its side. And let's take all these things we have blamed and shamed people for and celebrate it. And I think that's what people are really embracing is this idea that there's nothing wrong with me for the love I give. Now, I do want to say to you, Matt, that, and I'll shut up unless you ask questions, <laughs> that I can, I can enable addiction. I can make addiction worse. I can feed someone's problem. I can make them unhappier. But that doesn't mean I'm codependent. It just means I don't know how to get them well. You know, uh, I have my favorite story about this. If you want my favorite story about this, now you're going to have. So my favorite story about this is uh, the woman who's married to a guy who's an alcoholic. And they have two kids at home. And unfortunately, he has been had a few drinks when he's picking up the kids at work uh, after school. So he's drinking and driving. He's had a couple of DUIs. He's lost jobs. Um, he has been unreliable in the family and all of that stuff. And she comes home one day. She says, you know what? I really need you most from eight to four. So she comes home with two cold bottles of vodka and she puts them on the dining room table. This is an Al-Anon nightmare, by the way. And she says, I'm going to have these cold bottles of vodka on the table every day at four o'clock. And if you can get my kids back and forth to school sober, if you cannot get a DUI and if you cannot lose your job, you can drink however you want, want after four o'clock when you're home. Now, can you imagine what the alcohol and drug community would say about that under codependency? She's enabling him. She's bringing home bottles. What's wrong with her? What doesn't she know? She's causing the problem to happen. My response is, that's we call that in therapy, harm reduction. What she has done is enabled herself to get another couple of years out of that man because she needs his income. She needs to take care of those kids and she needs someone to drive him home from school. So to me, that was very smart. Now she comes in my office two years later and she says, you know, he's not able to keep that commitment anymore. Now he's drinking the other day. Now, great, let me get in there and help you get him sober. But what bothers me about our field is people expect partners and spouses to know what to do. 
when you're married to an alcoholic. I don't think any of us, unless none of us went to high school learning how to deal with addicts. No one, unless you studied it, knows how to deal with addiction when you went to college. If you went to college, why would we expect a partner or a spouse or a family member to know what to do when someone they love has become an addict? They don't. They're just doing their best. Now, we could say their best is not helpful, but that doesn't mean they did it because they're playing out trauma. Their best wasn't helpful because they didn't know any better. So when they come in my office, I might say, you know what, I'm not sure those bottles are really helpful, but what a good idea that was. Rather than, oh, you're hopelessly codependent and you're bringing home bottles. I think that was very clever of what she did. It didn't really solve the problem, but it got her another two years out of that guy before he had to go away. And I think that's a very different way of looking at this work than you might with codependency. Detachment. Detachment to an extent worked for us, Dr. Rob. The I spent 10 years in active addiction, going back and forth between sobriety and relapse and, and try, you know, I would put rules around my drinking and do all the things that we, we try to do to cling to the alcohol before we finally give it up. And at the end of that 10 years of active addiction, the two things that really pushed me into permanent sobriety were the elevated level of my depression and anxiety. I mean, it was debilitating. I just couldn't live that way anymore. But the other thing, was that Sherry kind of stopped giving a shit. And she didn't want to hear me talk about my rules. And she didn't want to hear me tell her about this new book I just read. She was done. And so to me, that is detachment. And in a lot of ways, that combination of the elevated levels of depression and anxiety, and then Sherry's detaching from me emotionally, those two things pushed me into sobriety. I'm wondering if you could tackle this topic of detachment. And because I know you're not a fan of of you don't advise people to detach, correct? Well, you want me to, let me answer the question for you. I don't think that Sherry detached from you because she wanted to get you sober. I think she detached, detached from you because she couldn't handle it anymore. And she was moving away from you emotionally to take care of herself. That's a very different thing than saying to a spouse, you got to get out of this house. You got to leave them in their misery. You got to, you know, there's a whole bunch of steps that can happen. So she can turn and take better care of her life and better self-care, which codependency encourages, but not to get you sober, not to, heal the relationship because she needs more support. And she, so I, what came up for me is something I say to um, audiences and couples a lot, and it's in pro-dependence. I really like this statement. Um, if I ask you the opposite of love, what would you say? What is the opposite of love? Hate. Okay. I do not think that's true. I think that when you hate someone, you're still passionately engaged with them. And you could say that hate and love are two paths that are parallel in one way, in some way. I think the opposite of love is indifference. I was gonna say that word. I think when you, what was your, what were you gonna say, Sherry? I was gonna say indifference. As soon as you asked that question. I told you she's the star. I was like indifference, because that's how I felt. I was just indifferent to what you were doing, whether you were drinking or not drinking, whether you were at dinner or not at dinner, I didn't care. It was me and the kids. Your laundry got done, your food got cooked. The house was kept. I showed up to the work, but. It was like, I didn't hate you because that would have also taken the energy. Right. So what I'm saying to you is what led you to sobriety is yes, you couldn't tolerate your own pain anymore, but you felt your wife pulling away because she couldn't live with what you were doing anymore. And that fear of abandonment and that desire to keep her and your family became much more acute. You realize she's slipping away emotionally and you know what comes after that got you sober, but she didn't become uh differentiated and distance from you to get you sober. She did it because she was taking care of herself and she could no longer love you in the way that she wanted to love you and not be in pain herself. That's very different than preaching detachment as a way of getting people sober, at least in my mind. And by the way, it goes right with codependency because what we're saying is Sherry's taking care of herself and that's what she needs to do. If taking care of herself means moving away from you, Okay, that's what she needs to do. But we don't need to say that everyone needs to detach themselves in order to get this outcome, because I don't actually think that's true. I think some addicts have the loving people in their life who are supporting them go away and they end up on the street. That's such an interesting distinction. You know, we have for some a good deal of time now recognized the fact that her detachment that that we recognized happened naturally. We know that a lot of the things we went through wasn't necessarily from from reading books or, or getting professional advice. Right. Not at the time. We have since read a lot of books like and gotten advice. It's instinctual. Right. kind of how I felt because I was falling out of love with you and I didn't like being around you. And 
Like, what do you do? You just separate yourself. But that distinction. So, so but between- Matt, what yeah. she just said, that's about her. It's not yeah. about you. It's not about your addiction. And that Absolutely. isn't, I need to take these moves and do this because there's something wrong with me and I'm hurting, but making the problem worse. That's codependency. This is, I can't be in a love that hurts me so much. And so I've got to step back so I can take care of myself. That is a naturally occurring experience. She tried and tried and tried, which is great. And then it wasn't doing anything. And so she has to let go of it. You know, I can only have a car that breaks down all the time for so long. And then I'm going to need a new car. And you, my friend, were the car that was breaking down and she needed a working car. Oh, absolutely. So so a common piece of advice that, that we all three of us are very familiar with in the recovery community is talking to the loved ones about raising the bottom. Um, this is actually one of the questions that I, one of our Echoes of Recovery people asked us to ask. That When we talk about raising the bottom, we're telling someone, you need to detach. You need to walk away and um, make it harder for this person to continue their life the way it is. And the, oftentimes in stories that we hear, when someone intentionally detaches, intentionally raises the bottom, that results in some of the worst trauma of the whole relationship. Is that your experience? It's artificial. What you're talking about is artificial. You know, it, the, the spouse may not be ready to say, I can't handle this anymore. They may be very much, I'm in love. And if I love enough, I can make this work. And, you know, I, I, what I, what I'm about is not saying, don't try to help them. What I, and and I'm not going to say the way, you know, your desire to help them is a problem. What I'm going to say is how can we, got a therapist involved. How could we together make your helping more effective? You're bringing home those bottles and putting on the table. That was a great idea. It wasn't as effective as you wanted because he's still drinking. That was a great move for two years. Now let's look at how you and I can get him sober in ever more effective ways. I don't have to say she did anything bad. I don't have to shame her, blame her, or tell her to leave. I can just say together, you did a great job, but together we can work to get this person sober. And that's simply saying if you would have done different things, would have done more things if you knew how. You didn't do it wrong. You didn't, you know, you did, you love this person. You did everything you know how. And everything that a partner of an addict does to try to get them well and live in this nightmare situation is exactly what a partner does if someone has cancer. You know, I was signing pro dependence. I was doing a book signing and I don't know where it is, Chicago. And this guy, I saw him in the audience. He had this giant bag of books. I mean, he had this big book. I mean, he fortunately was young, so he could carry it. It was purple. I just remember because he said it and he was going through the book signing line and he said to me, I think I really understand. And I give him the lecture. He was like, I think I really understand what you're talking about. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you see this book bag, this purple book bag on my back? I said, yeah, it's got a lot of stuff in it. He said, well, let me tell you why. My father was diagnosed with cancer two weeks ago and I have gotten every single book I can get on cancer. I've read every single article and I've been in the hospital every single day with him. Um, That's not codependency. That's love. But when we say to a partner, oh, you shouldn't read, you're reading every book, you're doing all this detective work, you're somehow they're wrong for wanting to learn everything about it and not focusing on themselves, rather than, yeah, you're living in a nightmare problem that is biological and psychological, and you need to understand it and find peace with it before you take any you know, action that someone else outside tells you to do. This is fun. I, we're having a great time. Yeah. I love this. Dr. Rob, I believe that the opposite of addiction is self-esteem. Um, I believe that having a positive uh, outlook, uh, feeling confident in yourself, that's the kind of thing that at least for me uh, and and a lot of people that I've talked to um, would keep me from self-medicating. Is the same true for the traumatized loved ones? Can you talk a little bit about the importance of positivity and healing? Is it important that we feel good about ourselves, that we love ourselves in order to recover from the trauma of alcoholism on either side of the street? Well, it's interesting you ask this question because I often, you know, certainly Brene Brown is very popular now and we talk a lot about shame, shame, shame. Um, I have particular ways of looking at it. It might be a little different than other folks, but I think the opposite of shame is self-esteem. Shame is this walking around the belief I'm not worthy. Uh, If you really knew me, you wouldn't love me. I do these horrible things and I'm unlovable. I mean, that is the opposite of self-esteem. So when I'm living in that self-doubt, self-hatred, self-attacking place, which is shame, it's very hard to see beyond myself. One of the other things I say about shame, which I don't think anybody talks about, is it's very narcissistic because it's all about me. Mm. Oh, poor me. And I do these terrible things and I don't let, look what I did to my marriage. And now, how about, it's not empathy. It's not compassion. It's not like, oh my God, I can't imagine what my 
what my spouse has been through in my drinking, that would be compassion and empathy. It's poor me. They're never going to love me again because I've been drinking and I don't deserve to be loved. And I, 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 I. So part of the work, and you know, I run a treatment program called Seeking Integrity. And part of what we have to do is move people from, I hate myself, I'm a terrible person, to I'm a really broken person. And there's stuff I need to really work on. And that shift is incredibly powerful for the addict because it shifts them out of um, their sense of hopelessness and into a sense of hope for change. So, and by the way, self-esteem, I think you'd agree, Matt, it, one of the biggest contributors is sobriety. You get some time together and just that, just that, I, I'm doing this. I feel good. I mean, it, it can be the seed from which the rest of it grows. But, um, but, you know, as far as the shame of the partner, I think it's a whole different deal, which is how alone partners are. Because if you have a drug addicted or alcoholic or sex addict, whatever partner, it's embarrassing. It's humiliating. It's not the fan, you know, who's going to send kids over to play at your house knowing you have the alcoholic spouse. So, and, and who do you tell your neighbor, your friends? It's very difficult when you're dealing with addiction, because if I go to my mother and I say, oh, my God, you know, my spouse is this and that. and The other thing we have to see each other at Thanksgiving. So, you know, do I go to my mother to go to my father to go to. So I think the shame part on the end of the spouse is how could I not have seen this? How could I not have known this? How could I have made this better? Who am I going to talk to about it? You know, they think it's their fault. You know, I think this is something I really want to talk about also is, is grief. There's a stage of grief that we don't talk about that Kubler-Ross did not write about, the woman who wrote the stages of grief. And, um, and my belief about that, it's remorse is a stage of grief, which is not in there. Meaning if my dog dies, sadly, um, I'm going to think, oh, I wish I'd walked in more. I wish we'd played more. I wish I'd take him to the vet more often. You know, if my mother passes, or I'm going to say, I wish we'd had that talk. I, so, or that innate feeling of, I wish I'd done it differently. And then this might've turned out differently is a part of grieving anything. And I think part of what we don't allow for is yes, spouses feel like if I'd done this differently, they wouldn't be drinking. If I'd done this, because that's what everybody feels when someone, when they're losing someone, they feel like, what could I, you know, that's actually love is this connection and this sense in the other partner. Could I do more? Could I, unfortunately that feeds this concept of codependency. Because this idea that I wasn't doing it right, and maybe if I'd done it right, they wouldn't have gotten hit by a car drinking, that's not true, but it is part of grief, which is I wish I could have done something differently for everyone who's grieving. And so what codependency did is it piled on top of that and said, yes, you should have done things differently. And I think that's abusive. That is, that hit home for me. Because I often think, well, what if I hadn't been so nagging? What if I hadn't let my temper get the best of me? What if I hadn't spouted off angry things to him when he was drunk? And I know he doesn't remember what I'm saying, but I have to vent. I have to get it out. And then I would feel terrible the next day, even though I knew he didn't remember. He knew that there was some issue, some, you know, but I felt terrible for saying those things out loud about someone who I was supposed to love. So you know, there is a lot of that remorse. And I know that we kind of talked about like grieving the relationship that we didn't have as part of our healing process. Um, but I, I never thought about the remorse because you do feel it. And I've never known that it wasn't part of the grieving stage, that it wasn't written in there. Cause you think about that in any sort of situation, a relationship, death, a death of a loved one, death of, a know. breakup. Uh, I yeah, wish we, if I'd said this, maybe we'd stay together. Or if we'd done this vacation, you know, remorse is endemic to loot, to loss. But, mm -hmm. but what we've done with that under codependency is somehow punish people for having those feelings rather than making them normal, which I think they really are. Yeah. Wow. Absolutely. I, I want to read you a quote. I heard, I heard you on a video that you released say, I don't stick, this is talking, you know, through the, the mouth, through the words of a, a loved one of an alcoholic. I don't stick by you as an addict because there's something wrong with me. I might stick by you because I know how to do it. You're, you're, you're saying that this loved one has a skill set, a talent, not a weakness. And I've also heard you call the loved ones, um, I've heard you call them heroes. Uh, heroes. I think that's really important. And, and that kind of goes back to this whole self-esteem thing. If you think of yourself as being a loved one of an alcoholic in a heroic way, because you're employing all these skill sets that you've learned or that just innately are there and you're doing your best, you know, you should feel good about yourself. And I, I feel like that's a big part of the message of pro-dependence. Do I have that right? I, I think that the person who does 
everything they can to help their partner, even if every bit of it is harmful, is only coming from a place of, I wish I knew how to do better, but this is the best I can do to love you and make you better. Um, so I'm not, I'm not, so to me, anyone who is, you know, it's interesting, let me say it this way. Sherry, I completely understand what you're saying before, because it reinforces the idea that spouses, partners, and family members become people they never wanted to be. You know, you became this person who's yelling at someone who's passed out or whatever. They, that's not who you wanted to be. But, you know, uh, if I was in a burning building, I might not turn out to be the person I was before either. When you're in a crisis, and especially an ongoing crisis, you take on ways of being and ways of feeling day after day after day that eventually push you into ways of acting that you wouldn't. But, but so I have to tell you, I have a friend who has cancer, sadly. And, you know, every time there is a new treatment everybody gets their hopes up they get their hopes dashed they move they move with the problem and that's what we do when we love someone we move in sync with them with the problem and and that's like the, the couple that's wearing the same clothes that's what happens when we love each other um i would be concerned sherry if you didn't yell at him because it would it would tell me you were moving toward indifference you know people who are not people who love someone yell at them when they're when they're failing and they could be doing it differently. Uh, people who don't care anymore are indifferent. And so you're yelling at him tells me that your love for him is being so thwarted, so thrown away. So you're standing there saying, please let me care about you, but you won't, you're not even there. Uh, you're, you are screaming to bring more closeness and connection into your relationship. That makes you a hero. Sherry, you have feelings about this. I think you need to talk about them. Yeah, I mean, well, we just had, um, you know, I've done another podcast recently, we kind of and we had a writing prompt in our echoes, and it was about, like, in retrospect, and I have felt bad, because I do have a temper, and that was one of the things that was thrown up in my face a lot in arguments and the day after was if you didn't have such a bad temper and yes my feelings as you can tell Dr. Rob like come to the surface immediately and whether it's good bad or ugly so I do have a lot of feelings about that because I still have a lot of feelings where I'm like if I would have responded differently if I wouldn't have raised my voice if I would have just let it play out if I wouldn't have said no you know all these things that we do remorse um, you know, and it is total remorse. So I'm very comforted knowing that, you know, if I didn't yell at him and I didn't like vet my anger, then it would show that I was indifferent a lot earlier on and probably would have broken up the marriage at that point because. Well, if you had to hold that back for so long, you would have. Yeah. Yeah. And early on, you know, we didn't have as much tied together and connectivity with the kids and the business that we had together at the time. So it would have been easier for me just to separate and leave. So, I mean, it does make me feel comforted that for once in my life, like my yelling and screaming and, you know, and my emotions, my negative emotions were because I do love you and do care. And so, and because you're just trying to shake him and wake him up and say, look what we have here and look what could be great. And if you could just see it and that's fighting for what is a good that we share, not fighting to make it worse or trying to mess it up. Or, and I really like what you said earlier, both of you really about, you know, we kind of found our way through the dark. And I think Sherry, you said, I was just feeling what I was feeling and doing what I was doing. And it, and I agree, you know, it was the best you could do when someone you love is falling apart. And then, you know, why can't I make this? Why can't your frustration, your anger, all perfectly healthy and normal, but they're just, a, and here's, let me, let me, sort of put a completely different turn on this. If I put away codependency and I say, okay, there's nothing wrong with a partner. They are loving, they are caring. And if they're showing trauma symptoms from their past, it's probably because under stress, everyone shows past trauma, everyone regresses, everyone shows past trauma symptoms. So, um, you know, we could say, uh, let's examine that because that's the reason for the your half of the problem, which is codependency. Or as a therapist, we could say, which is, I think we're right. You know, I noticed this person in my head. I'm going to write a few notes about how I wonder if they're acting out some trauma from the past. And then once the sobriety happens and the crisis is over, then if they want to continue therapy, um, and a lot of couples don't, they just want things to get better. They just want things to go back to they were. I don't think that everybody wants to self-examine with 12 books and 15 years of therapy and just to figure out why they failed when they love someone who is failing. I mean, it's obvious. 
So what do, how do I view the treatment of spouses and family members if it isn't codependency? And the answer to that is crisis intervention. Um, you are in a crisis. Everything in your life is threatened. Everything that means something to you is being threatened. It's no different than somebody got hit by a car and you're not going to sure if they live or they don't. You're not sure if that alcoholic is going to live or not or ruin everything you have. So what I would do is try, and what is crisis treatment, by the way? It's very simple. You give the person hope. You give them direction. You help reassure them this can get better. It's gotten better for other people. You give them things to do, you know, go to this group and you educate them. So you support them, you educate them, you offer them hope, you tell them that they're going to get through this and that other people have all of that stuff. There's nothing in crisis intervention, like what happens if you're in a fire or you know a, a short-term crisis, that says to blame the person who's in the crisis for being in the crisis. You know, It's all about supporting the crisis. You are been pushed into crisis as a partner because everything you knew and everything you loved is falling apart and you can't make it better. That's a crisis. One of the things that they clearly say in any kind of education about crisis management, crisis treatment is never engage in complex and difficult concepts because the person is too overwhelmed to look at them. Never give them difficult things to examine. Don't ask them to self-examine. This is actually in crisis literature. You don't ask people to take on difficult concepts and to examine themselves when they're just trying to get through the day. And so my interest is in moving from codependency, which is a exploratory kind of analytic model, and I don't think particularly useful for people in this kind of crisis, to supporting them, educating them, validating them, and help them keep going on the path they're on with more support. Um, to me, that is, um, that's the goal. And so, um, and so if you ask me, well, okay, we toss codependency to the curb, what have we got? I say we have a completely different way of looking at family members and partners that says they are really struggling in a situation not of their own making. And we need to support them until that situation has passed. And then if they want to look at themselves, they can. That's great. That's great. I want to go back to that cute couple that's dressed alike that you, that you see walking and they're, they're on their way to the fast food place so they can share that pickle. Um, <laughs> I've heard you say, Dr. Rob, that um, seeking validation in connection is actually a good thing. There's a lot of talk in the recovery community about how we can't fill each other's buckets. We've got to fill our own bucket. In our relationship, I, I am much more independent now than I was as an alcoholic when I was clingy and needy and jealous and just a drunk puddle all the time, you know, all over her. I'm much more independent now but the relationship is much healthier. I don't feel like I'm seeking validation from her, but, but am I still doing that? I'm just doing it in a more healthy manner. Does that, does that question make sense? Well, I think part of the whole codependency movement and, the, and it's tie into feminism, all that is that you need to pull yourself up by the bootstraps. You need to do it by yourself. It's very Western thinking, but I don't think that's a reality. I don't think that's how we live. We live in constant connection. We, we thrive. We are meant to pair bond. That is how we are built. How do I know we're meant to pair bond? Because people who are together in a happy relationship live longer. They're happier. All the research says they are less stressed. So clearly we do better in coupleship than we do alone. Coupleship is about mutual and shared dependency. You know, I expect and depend on my spouse to come home and do this. And it makes me feel good when they do. And if they don't, I feel bad. It's not my fault for feeling bad if they don't follow through on what they're supposed to follow through on. I am dependent on them to do this. And that I think that the deeper that dependency is, the more independent we do become. Um, you know, because now you're getting a lot of your regular needs or dairy needs met in the world. And now you can come back to her for the really meaningful stuff, as opposed to coming to her like a five-year-old who she now has to parent. Um, nobody wants to love, no one wants to be married to their mother. But when you turn your partner into your mother, then that's unhealthy dependency. And, and by the way, one of the reasons that I don't like the word codependency is that in psychological uh, literature, in our in our writings and stuff, there have always been language for over-dependency. There are people who are unable to live without the constant, constant support of other people. They can't even get up in the morning unless someone's there. They're so troubled in life that, you know, that's a mental illness. But the th truth is we always had words for 
uh, over-dependency, unhealthy dependency, problematic dependency. We didn't need to add a word that has no research and has no background, but we did. So what I'm saying is if you believe in the concepts you're talking about, about people being not independent enough and leaning into each other too much, certainly that can happen, but that's a psychological issue that we've known about for a hundred years. Yeah, I would, I'm interested in what you were um, alluding to with the Western thinking concept about probably autonomy or pairing up, I think is where we were talking about that. Well, we're talking about Western culture being a lot about pull yourself up by the bootstraps, do it by yourself, you know, detach, figure it out, be a stronger person. That's very, you know, Western. People who come from Native American culture don't think that way. People who come from Latina culture don't think that way. They think about community. So I have a wonderful Latina therapist who is writing about this. And she said, you know, this idea of codependency, which is preached everywhere, you know, in my culture, if I was married to an alcoholic, and I detached and started focusing on myself and really getting into self-care and limiting the ways I interact with that person, they would call me selfish because I'm trying to take this all on by myself. What I'm supposed to do in those cultures is turn to the community and together we all figure this out. I don't need to go off and individuate. What I need to do is bond with my community. This is true in African-American culture, uh, Native American culture, Latina culture, uh, uh, all throughout the Middle East. It, it's really pretty, uh, so I don't want to say this, it's pretty specific to what we call Eurocentric or Western culture, this idea that the way to heal is to pull yourself by the bootstraps and do it yourself. That's just not how most cultures work. That's how Western cultures work. So when I was in the American Indian community and I was teaching about pro-dependence, people came up to me and said, thank God, because that codependence never worked for us. It doesn't make any sense to us. It isn't anything about how we act. We would never encourage the individual to leave the situation, work on themselves. We would bring them into the community and we would heal it together because they're more communal cultures. Why am I saying all of this? I'm simply saying it because if you have an, an emotional psychiatric issue, it has to be universal. You know, people get depressed in every single culture. People are schizophrenic in every single culture. You have addicts in every single culture. But this concept of codependency does not apply actually in the majority of cultures. But who writes all the self-help books? Western culture people. Mm -hmm. And so what I'm saying to you is what I'm interested in is also having a model of care for families that embraces them where they are. That doesn't have to say, well, you have to have these values or these rules or these values. I want to be with you in your crisis and move within your community the best way to resolve that crisis in the way that you live, whether that's your church or your family or, you know, I don't want to have a preconceived notion of you have to detach and you have to do because it actually doesn't work for lots and lots of people. They don't even understand it. So that's part of why I'm not in favor of codependency is because to be very honest, I think it was written by a bunch of empowered white women in the 1980s who were looking for solutions to having married alcoholic men. And most of, almost all the codependency literature was written by women. Almost all of it was written by women who had alcoholic abusive husbands and they married alcoholic, and I'm sorry, they had alcoholic abusive fathers and they married alcoholic abusive men. And so they're writing about their experience, which is really interesting. And I have a lot of empathy for those women, but there's no basis for it at back. And there's no research, and, but it took off like a rocket. You just brought up something I want to follow up on. Is there any reason why Sherry's father was an alcoholic? It's so common for women who are the daughters of alcoholics to marry alcoholic men. Is, is there an attraction that's unexplained or are there just so many zillions of us alcoholics out there that it's inevitably going to happen? You know, we learn and you all know this, anybody who's done a work on themselves, we learn certain ways of living and we learn certain ways of reacting and we learn it so young that it's just a part of us. And if you grow up in an alcoholic family, I think you learn to accept and see as acceptable all kinds of language, behavior that other people would not. So I can imagine someone dating uh, someone who is alcoholic and not really noticing the signs of warning because what they're looking at, they're not seeing it. You know, it's like the woman who is sexually abused and then she, a woman who is sexually abused in early age are more likely to experience rape later in life. Why is that? Because they walk into an alley and they're not looking out for that person. They're not realizing the situation they're putting them in. They're not looking out to protect themselves because they didn't know how to and they never learned how to when they were little. And things were made acceptable that would be unacceptable to a different woman. So I do think that some of us learn. I grew up, guess what my mother was? 
mentally ill. And guess what I do? I am really skilled at help, helping mentally ill people. And I have lots of friends who say, oh, I could never do that. They're right, because they didn't grow up in an environment that gave them the skill set to be able to manage that and not be overwhelmed by it. So I do think that partners and family members, maybe early in life, learned skills, learned ways of looking at people, learned to accept things that perhaps they shouldn't have, but they didn't. That's what they grew up with. That's what they knew. So I don't think that partners are heat-seeking missiles for addicts. I think that partners who have those histories are more able to tolerate and enjoy and, and love an addict because you've seen love in those situations before and you've seen families tolerate those situations before. But I'll tell you this, do you really think that every person who ever married an alcoholic is codependent? There is no other, Rob's getting on a rant. There is no, even if codependency was a mental health diagnosis with criteria that said, if you have these five out of seven, you're codependent. Um, even if that were true, um, I have no idea what I was going to say. Since it's the problem when being 60, I have to say, like I start, my grandmother used to say, oh, hi, Paul, Joe. And then she got to Robert. And I have found myself not remembering what I, walking a room, it's like, oh, okay, here's the worst. I have to say this. I go in a room, like, where are my keys? Where did I put my keys? And they're in my hand. Okay, that's being 60. So I just want to play that. Anyway, let's go back to where we were. Well, your enthusiasm more than makes up for, I mean, when you go on a rant, I'm on the edge of my seat. I'm really enjoying this. Yeah, the, uh, the codependency oh. term, um, and is every person that marries an alcoholic a codependent? Right. No, we are not. Right. And and, and do you get turned into someone and eventually become someone who looks similar to other partners of alcoholics? Sure. Just mm -hmm. like other partners of cancer survivors look similar, talk similar. That's you're in a you're in a group who are going through similar experiences. But that doesn't mean you all have you know, these issues at the core. And I do know what I wanted to say, which is I've been a mental health professional and licensed for 25 years, a long time. Um, there is no other quote unquote diagnosis, none, zero ever that I would think about before someone walked in my office. You know, I might hear about things that they're doing, but I'm not going to say, oh, that person, they must be depressed or they must. I have to meet them. I have to spend time with them. I have to assess and evaluate them. How often is it that the partner of an alcoholic or drug addict or any kind of other kind of addict walks in or a family member walks into therapy and that therapist has already thought, oh, well, they're codependent. So let's start looking at the signs of codependency. How do you know that? We don't automatically assign a diagnosis to anybody. It's unethical. So why would I assume that you are anything just because you married an alcoholic? And by the way, don't you understand that I am seeing you as a therapist in the worst moment of crisis in your life? You know, people say, oh, my God, that woman's so crazy. But was she crazy two years ago when everything was fine, when they weren't gaining DUIs and he wasn't getting arrested or she was probably in a lot better shape. So who's in front of me as this crazy person is someone who's been dealing with this horrible problem for years. And so, of course, they don't look like the person who's walking in who's having a bad day. But that doesn't mean that they are crazy. It means the situation that they've been in would drive anybody crazy. And then they come in our office and we say, oh, well, poor dear, you can see what's wrong with her. No, you don't because you've already decided what's wrong with her or him. That's a problem. Wow. That's my rant. I love it. Last question for you, Dr. Rob. My addictions, when I got sober from alcohol, they you know, transferred to other things. Food, uh, you know, I, I ate ice cream like it was going out of style there for a while. So I had to battle with, yeah, with sugar and, and simple carbs. Uh, I no longer had that evening cocktail to give me the notification that I was done working. So I just didn't stop working. Um, so workaholism is part of my profile. Um, but another one that we talk about on a regular basis here on, on the Intoxicated podcast is sex. Um, I developed what I consider to be a sex addiction. Now, there was never any infidelity in our relationship. I'm not a porn fan. That doesn't, doesn't do anything for me. But I desired sex because, I, I don't know, I was dopamine deficient. Um, I was hurting. I desired sex with my partner um, at an elevated level. And I'm wondering, is, is that common? Is, is this crossover between sex addiction in whatever form and alcohol addiction? Is it something that you see a lot in your practice? 
Well, I run a treatment program for people who have combined sex and drug problems. It's one of the things I do. So at Seeking Integrity, I've got people who are coming in with opioid addictions and sexual problems, and they're coming with alcoholism and sexual problems. And they can't get sober on drugs and alcohol because of the way they're sexually acting out. You know, you talked about crawling to your wife, crawling to her in your misery and being overly needful with her when you were using. And we talked about her being more like a mom. So I think what happens is, you know, active addicts and alcoholics are so needy and so needful and so wanting to bring in validation, attention, feel important on every level because we're narcissistic, you know, when we're using it, that if I have sex with you, you want me, you desire me, I'm important, I'm okay. So sex takes on all kinds of other meanings than simply having sex. Um, if you're not a sex addict, sex addicts is a, you know, a whole different thing where people, uh, for example, I work with men who, whenever they drink and use, they go pick up sex workers. They go to places where there are, are prostitutes and then they get sober, uh, drugs, alcohol, whatever, but then they go out to have sex and they go back to those places and guess where the drugs and the alcohol is. Mm -hmm. So they can't stop using because they can't, they haven't dealt with their sexual acting out. So that's sort of where we see it that's what I would call a cross or co-occurring addiction, as opposed to the alcoholic who's just constantly seeking validation from a partner and sex is one of the ways that they do that. Um, if you told me, however, that you've been sober for five years and you're driving your wife crazy because you want to have sex three times a day and you're making her feel awful about not doing it, then we'd be having another conversation about sex addiction. Yeah. It, in our case, it's definitely something as the, re as the alcohol recovery got better, so did that side of things. So it sounds like that's kind of a natural progression. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think that our, you know, sexual issues in a relationship in the, you know, recovery stages, it, you're still dealing with a lot of emotions and intimacy and lacking of. So it is something that takes time. But I think that for the addict, they were oblivious to some of the things that were going on during the active addiction. And they aren't really understanding how much of an impact it played on us. So to give ourselves in a sexual nature and be ready for that, I think is a, real, is a lot harder for the spouse. Well, I've seen both. You know, sometimes I see spouses who I want to have a lot of sex with her or him so I can reassure myself that they love me and they're not going to go anywhere. And now that they're sober and they're not going to go out again. So they use sex as a means, spouses and partners can use sex as a means. Uh, again, it's not about sex. It's about security consistency, feeling a sense of control. So the partners might leap into a lot of sex before the wrong reasons, because actually they feel distant, but they're doing it with some idea of something. Um, where the addicts, yeah, I agree, if you're not a sex addict, you're going to be engaging your partner on a whole different level in terms of what you need than such an actively direct physical form. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Well, I know I've got about a hundred more questions about sex and, and rebuilding intimacy. And we would just be so honored. We'd love to have you back sometime, Dr. Rob, if, if you're so willing. Um, but we are out of time for today. The book is Pro-Dependence. We are huge fans. Our um, Echoes of Recovery group is, is your biggest fan club that you didn't know about. Dr. Rob, where can people find Pro-Dependence? Well, really quickly, let me just say what's happened with it. Um, I wrote this book in 2018, and it was picked up by a... Um, an academic publisher. And those are the really fancy people who take the books into graduate school and stuff. And they said, we love this idea and we wanna turn it into a formal uh, alternative to codependency, which will be the first in 40 years. And so it's gonna go into all of the graduate schools. It's going to be offered to all of the addiction programs as an alternative to codependency. There's already a 12-step program, which I think is prodependence.org. I didn't set it up, uh, but it's out there. Um, and as a result, I'm rewriting the book to make it better than it was. So what's happening is there's this, um, I hate to use this word, movement, which you are experiencing. I haven't talked in Colorado in years. You know, I haven't been there. I haven't started. But people are feeling this. And I, 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 just one more thing. I back to the table where I signed books. You said I've written 10 books. I am a crazy person. I have written 10 books. But I've also sat in 10 lines signing books. And I can tell you that pro-dependence is the first time ever where someone comes up to me in tears after the lecture I gave and said, you mean it's not my fault. My son didn't die because of me, you know, and they buy five copies and they say, I want to give it to everyone in my family. And it's like that, you know, and, and so I, and I have very few, if any people saying, how could you put down codependency? I think that we have been right for a long time, therapists in particular, for a new way of doing this work. And it's kind of like you said, you know, I, I hated codependency, but it was all you were told. 
And so I think a lot of people, a lot of partners had to buy in, family members had to buy into a concept that they didn't feel comfortable with, but they did for the sake of getting their partner sober. This is what I got to do. I got to look at this, got to look at myself this way. I'm not sure it was the best choice. Um, me, how to reach me. Uh, well, I'm not hard to reach. I run a treatment program called Seeking Integrity, and I am Rob at SeekingIntegrity.com. And uh, I run free seminars online a couple of days a week. You know, a lot of my work is in sex addiction, so I have a treatment program for that. Um, and I really look forward to coming back to talk about sex addiction, drug and sex addiction. There's so much, and I'll just leave you with a, this. Why, does, why do some people who sexually act out abuse opioids versus someone else who acts out who abuses meth? Why would someone want to be on speed having sex versus going unconscious having sex? And, and I can psychologically tell you a few of these things about why certain kinds of drugs and certain kinds of sexual behaviors are interactive. And that's another fun conversation. Plus, I have a lot of information for spouses of sex addicts and spouses of porn addicts because it's such a personal issue. You know, if your spouse is drinking, it's one thing, but they're having six affairs. Even if it's an illness, it affects you so much more profoundly as a spouse. Um, and by the way, that's where all this comes from because no spouse who's addict, sex addict partners had a hundred affairs says, oh, well, what is my part? and you're having a hundred affairs. Like there's nothing I could have ever done to cause that to happen. And that's sort of where all of this came from is, is my sex addiction work and expanded. And we're just, we're so blessed to have you join us today, Dr. Rob, thank you very much. Um, we will link to in the show notes to the, your websites. And again, Rob at seekingintegrity.com. We hope some of our listeners reach out and we definitely hope that they pick up a copy of Protopendence, maybe two, maybe one now, and then again in April when uh, when the new. Well, the book is being retitled. The book is being retitled, and it's going to call. It's going to be called Protopendence: Ending the Myth of Codependency. I finally decided to step out and say, you know what, this is just not okay. We have to move. So, um, you guys are great. I love recovering couples. Matt, it sounds like you were a terrible alcoholic. I'm impressed that you stayed with him. Um, <laughs> you must really love him to have gone through all of that and still be sitting there. And that is pro-dependence in action. Absolutely. Thanks for being with us, Dr. Rob. Thank you. Thank you, guys. I love your smiles. Talk to you soon. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to soberevolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.